Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Oh, it's great, Natalie. It's it's a little overcast for my taste. Um, You know what they say about February. It's the shortest month, but it's it's really the longest month weather-wise. Other than that, everything's great. How are you? Uh, also dealing with some rainy weather, which I agree with you, kind of feels appropriate for February. Also appropriate, it's the final week of the court's midwinter recess. And, you know, midwinter, you never really think of good weather, right? Um, but yes, the, the good silver lining kind of sunshine at the end of the tunnel is that the justices will meet for their first conference since January 20th tomorrow. Uh, we're obviously recording Thursday, so... They'll be meeting tomorrow, Friday, February 17th, and that'll be the start of, uh, you know, some rocking and rolling, hopefully. There's a couple of big arguments coming up. There certainly are. Um, next Tuesday, when the justices kind of come back from the, from the holiday, um, they will hear back-to-back days of arguments in cases involving kind of the scope of immunity for internet companies in Uh, Not just defamation suits, but suits of other kinds as well. Um, That's going to be a really big one. We've kind of chatted about it on the podcast before. We're going to have lots more on that. Um, The following week will be kind of the big showdown over the legality of President Biden's student debt relief plan. So the justices are going to wade into whether the challengers have standing to sue the, the Biden administration in court over this plan to forgive billions and billions of dollars for millions and millions of American uh, student borrowers, and if so, whether the plan is illegal as currently constituted by the Department of Education. So really big February-March session coming up. Uh, There was going to be another case about uh, the Title 42 border policy. This is one that was enacted at the start of the pandemic that allowed the government to essentially turn away Uh, asylum seekers at the border very quickly in light of the COVID-19 national emergency. But, you know, a little more than a week after the Biden administration said the case is now basically going to be moot once the emergency, the COVID-19 emergency is rescinded in May, this Supreme Court dispute over Title 42 is going to also be moot. So uh, the court, just a few just an hour ago, maybe, uh, took that case off of its March argument. So if you were really paying attention to that one, that one is not going to be on the docket. So with all that housekeeping out of the way, Jimmy, what are we talking about today? I think this is a good week to talk about something that we always talk about on this show, which is how the last you know five years or so have ushered in this transformation of the Supreme Court with the addition of these four new justices. Now, the Supreme Court, I, I say that because, you know, maybe if you've only been following it for the last few years, it seems like this is an institution that there's there's always a new justice. Every couple of years, someone retired. Well, that's not exactly the not case. true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Breyer, so Justice Breyer, who recently retired, he was, I think, the junior justice, the the most, uh, the newest justice on the court for like over a decade. Because, um, but after his appointment, there wasn't another vacancy for over a decade until I, I believe it was Roberts um, in two thousand and five. And so this was a court that was very static. And now you have all of this kind of disruption and change to uh, an institution that doesn't necessarily always like change. Um, so I thought it was interesting this week to kind of focus on and grapple with the issue of how the other side of the bench has been dealing with 
in responding to these changes at the Supreme Court that is the bar. So this week I've been working on a feature where I've been interviewing attorneys and doing some research just about how Supreme Court lawyers have been kind of adjusting their legal strategies in response to the changing composition of the Supreme Court. I love this topic because I'm always like thinking about how Supreme Court attorneys are, you know, fine-tuning their arguments before they go in front of the justices. So so what are some of the most common answers you heard? Now, I don't think this is going to shock a lot of people that hear this, but, you know, a lot of the lawyers I spoke to, these are, you know, the big uh, private practitioners. They work for firms. They don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily the ones constantly litigating the big constitutional abortion cases or affirmative action cases and things like that. Um, so these are civil disputes that make their way through the court system due to, you know, a split in the lower federal courts over some particular statute or provision that then needs to be resolved by the justices. So the job then becomes for them to convince the justices that their interpretation of these provisions, you know, whether it's in the Federal Arbitration Act or the National Labor Relations Act, that their interpretation is the correct one. So what I heard over and over again is that, you know, uh, it, it really behooves Supreme Court practitioners these days to kind of base their arguments around the justices' own ideological preferences when it comes to textualism. So we have, with the new additions to the court, a number of justices that self-profess to be avowed textualists. These are justices that when they're interpreting statutes, they look primarily to the plain meaning of text. And if that doesn't deliver the answer, then they turn to other, what are called canons of interpretation. So you know, what you're seeing in the private bar now is quite a lot of brief writing that centers around those very same arguments, kind of to the exclusion of a lot of arguments that you, that you used to see in the past. Yeah, Justice Kagan uh, notably said we're all textualists now. Uh, I believe Although she last recently qualified it. Yeah, she yeah, did but qualify no, it. She did, she did say qualify it. it. Um, but to the point that you're making, it's, it's the big thread in the court now. Um, but it's hardly a new phenomenon, right? No, it's certainly not a phenomenon. And that's probably what a lot of our, you know, whether some Supreme Court lawyers are out there listening to us, they say, hey, I've been doing that for years. And that is certainly well documented. Justice Antonin uh, Scalia was, you know, he's the Supreme Court's most famous textualist to have ever served on the bench. He served from 1986 to 2016. And he's kind of credited with ending what he, what he and others have kind of jokingly but only half jokingly referred to as of the bad old days back in the you know 70s and maybe early 80s when the justices would start um, interpreting statutes by looking maybe to things like legislative history like committee reports from the senate or uh, floor speeches from certain lawmakers as a way to kind of divine the intent of what congress meant when they were passing particular pieces of legislation now that's long since ceased to be the case largely through Justice Scalia's influence with textualism, but, uh, you know, through other uh, members of the bench and bar as well. Um, and it's borne out by a new empirical study uh, of Supreme Court briefs by a William and Mary law professor by the name of Aaron Andrew Brule, who analyzed over 8,000 Supreme Court briefs filed over a 35-year period. And he found, quote, 
Party briefs filed in the Supreme Court have moved in a more textualist direction since 1985 as measured by the kinds of interpretive sources they cite and even more so uh, which ones they emphasize. So that certainly suggests that this has been a trend that's been uh, many years in the in, in the offing here. But I think what's notable about the last several years is just how entrenched that practice has become in the level of sophistication with which these attorneys are making those arguments. For instance, I spoke to Sarah Harris of Williams and Connolly, and she basically said that, yeah, while it's true that you know textualism has been kind of a bedrock of Supreme Court practice for many years, now you're seeing this very kind of uh, in-depth, um, involved level of sophistication when it comes to these arguments spanning multiple pages of the briefs um, where people are discussing the canons of interpretation and things like the serious qualifier rule or the last antecedent rule. We're not going to go into detail about what these <laughs> things actually are. And, you know, Scalia and uh, Brian Garner's famous uh, uh, statutory interpretation book, Reading Law, has kind of become like the mainstay of every private Supreme Court firm that has to do statutory interpretation case. This is considered their Bible now. So that's just how much this whole idea of textualism has has risen as uh, in terms of importance, in terms of priority for Supreme Court litigators in the private bar. So given there, there's only so much you can or should extend your briefs and your, you know, your filings to the Supreme Court, what's getting left at the cutting room floor here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of mentioned it briefly a second ago, but legislative history is like a really good example of one that you're not seeing as much, whether that's in arguments or in briefs. I mean, um, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, perhaps, is, is someone that maybe is a little bit more interested in it. So, so what I've heard is that while you know these arguments aren't going to be the the primary focus of a merits brief let's say they might be outsourced to an amicus filer who's going to f- you know a lot of the times counsel of record or the primary counsel for a client they're going to reach out to different amicus groups that can file briefs that can bring attention to maybe some of those arguments about legislative history another one is you know policy arguments basically like what's going to happen if the Supreme Court rules a certain way in a case? These used to be very powerful arguments that a lot of parties would kind of center in the course of their representation of a particular client before the court and saying, hey, look, if you rule X way, the whole sky is going to fall or, or what have you. And now what I'm hearing from lawyers is that they're very hesitant to do that. Um, Bob Loeb of Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe told me, quote, there's certainly a majority on the court that not only doesn't agree with those arguments, but actually would view them as a sign of weakness that you don't have the text on your side. And now you have to resort to the unbecoming, beseeching, ignore the text because I have a broader policy argument you should listen to. So I thought that was really telling in that uh, the lawyers that are representing cases sometimes have to put blinders up about what the practical implications of a Supreme Court ruling is going to be for fear that the justices might think, hey, the, the only reason you know he or she is arguing that is because they don't have the best reading of the text. It's almost like, well, at, at least it makes me as a, as a third party observer wonder, like, are the justices then like not aware of the full kind of policy implications of these cases. But in any event, it, it seems like a pretty significant development. Yeah, that's an interesting point you're you're making, especially in light of, I think, also how 
the point that you made about amicus briefs and how some of this is getting outsourced to them and also just given the rise in amicus briefs and how they the role they play in these Supreme Court cases. So that's really interesting to think about going back to kind of the, the big textualism threat. I, I see how this is a big deal for Supreme Court lawyers, but how is the court's emphasis on history and tradition in originalist decisions like Dobbs and Brune affected Supreme Court practices? Yeah, I think litigators now realize that they have to make those arguments. And and I, I kind of said at the beginning that they're, that in the private bar, you're not always the one that's arguing the big abortion case or the big affirmative action case. But even in a lot of these business cases, you know, they might touch on some constitutional provision or another that now makes it a really important for these litigators to go and do that historical originalist interpretation of these constitutional provisions um, for the benefits of their client. What I heard from Sarah Harris of Williams and Connolly, for instance, is like, quote, you failed to offer an originalist perspective in your brief at your peril. And, you know, Bob Loeb said the same thing that uh, he, he said basically it would be malpractice in certain contexts not to do it. And you're seeing that, like, for instance, this case, there was a personal jurisdiction case um, involving, you know, Norfolk Southern. And a lot of the briefing and argument dealt with the the disputes and the debates over the, like, the historical record over the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Similar situation in last term's decision involving, uh, you know, the, the the federal eminent domain power when it came to uh, the Penn East pipeline. So definitely you're seeing even the private bar outside of the context of these constitutional abortion cases and affirmative action cases, you're seeing the private bar embrace those originalist methodologies and try and scour kind of the historical record, which is Something that maybe wasn't the case, wasn't the way that these cases were litigated, you know, 10 years ago or so. Okay, so we've hit textualism and originalism now being, you know, kind of prime tools in the toolbox for Supreme Court lawyers. What are some of the other ways um, the new composition of the court has changed the way these lawyers bring their cases to them? Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with Paul Hughes. He's the co-head of the Supreme Court and appellate practice at McDermott, Will & Emery, someone you'll see at the lectern fairly frequently. Um, he specializes in arguing immigration cases at the Supreme Court, and he's had quite a bit of success over the years doing so. Um, but according to Paul, there has been a, quote, sea change, that's the, word he, that's the phrase he used, in the way that the Supreme Court treats immigration cases especially. And that change has been basically reframing these cases that were once bogged down in, let's say, the esoteric details of immigration law, or maybe they were environmental law. And now they're placed in the broader context of administrative law. How so? Well, so not only is the Supreme Court more textualist, or at least it claims to be, and more originalist, um, but there's also quite a few justices on the court now that hold a very deep skepticism of federal agencies, especially federal agencies that claim to have unchecked power that can't be reviewed by a federal court. So basically, in the immigration context, he, Paul said he's found a lot of success framing these cases as disputes, not about like the dense mechanics of immigration law, but rather about the relationship between these agencies, the courts, and the regulated public. So he said to me, 
To be successful in presenting an immigration case at this court, I think it's critical that the administrative law issues at the heart of the case come to the center of the issues that are presented. So if there's a question about the relationship between federal court jurisdiction and administrative agencies, the case is truly about the balance of authority between federal courts and administrative agencies. So like, if you have an immigration case, instead of kind of focusing on maybe one narrow technical aspect of immigration law, you say, you know, this is really a separation of powers case. Maybe a federal court should be able to review this particular finding that an immigration judge made or the Board of Immigration Appeals made, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you're seeing a lot of those cases come up and not just in the immigration context as well. It could be in the environmental context. It could be in the labor law context. So, the idea of framing disputes in order to appeal to kind of the, I don't know, the more skeptical um, nature of a Justice Gorsuch or a Justice Amy Coney Barrett when it comes to administrative law has been a pretty successful strategy for Paul and I'm sure quite a lot of other Supreme Court litigators in recent terms. And it will probably only continue to to develop that trend. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and I think one quote that stood out from the report that launched kind of this whole discussion was that like well yeah attorneys are are gonna kind of lean a little bit towards these tools because they have to know their audience when they're making their arguments right um but just kind of talking through the nuances of that and and everything i think it's a, a quite a bit to chew on and i'll certainly be thinking about it um as i watch oral arguments in the future i mean ta- yeah definitely it's it's why the the whole idea of the Kennedy brief, that's where that came from. This was the idea like during Justice Anthony Kennedy's years-long reign at kind of the center, the ideological center of the court. Um, he was the power broker. He was the vote to get. And so in that sense, he was the audience that a lot of these brief writers were aiming their briefs towards. And that's what, that's, you know, I think in one abortion case many years ago, someone had I read a report that said like, uh, you know, the the litigants cited Kennedy's own opinions back to him like 22 times or something like that. And it was there was a similar dynamic at play during uh, when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was on the bench because she was again in that ideological center and someone who had a very outsized influence. I think what I'm hearing now is that there really isn't that single power broker that there used to be, and so there are no more Kennedy briefs, and there are no more O'Connor briefs, and it's much more kind of focusing in on that kind of textualist, originalist, and anti-administrativist kind of coalition that, yeah, tends to uh, appeal cater more towards the court's conservative supermajority, but in some cases there's some ideological crossover and maybe they'll pick up a liberal justice here or there. But yeah, certainly uh, litigators are constantly keeping a a really close ear to the ground um, on the changing dynamics of the Supreme Court. So these are just a few of the ways that they're doing so. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much for bringing this to our attention. I, for one, cannot wait to read your fuller story. Um, But yeah, I think that just about wraps up for today, right? I think so. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Steve Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. 